It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 32-year-old drug smuggler George Young's only previous experience in prison had been in Mexico. Still, he figured the rules were the same everywhere. Don't get pushed around. Which was why he was surprised when his new friend, 25-year-old Carlos Lader, a self-professed Colombian revolutionary and burgeoning cocaine trafficker, willingly let one of the other guys hit him. The entire weight room at the Danbury prison gym froze. Carlos was small and baby-faced, more obsequious than macho. Was he going to fight back? But Carlos just stood there. He didn't move to shield his face or even raise his fists. Seeing the other guy winding up for another go, George had no choice but to jump in. He pushed back, threatening to beat up the aggressive con if he ever touched Carlos again. Faced with George's height and weight, the guy backed down. George turned to look at Carlos, dumbstruck and wondering what in the world his friend was thinking. But Carlos was just smiling calmly. The way he saw it, he had all the proof he needed. He could trust George to defend him when he was down, something Carlos would need over and over during the course of their partnership. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Podcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and Twitter at Podcast Network. This is our second episode in a four-part series about powerful cocaine traffickers George Young and Carlos Lader Rivas. Last week, we got to know these two misfit criminals, one American and one Colombian, as they entered the world of smuggling and organized crime in the 1960s and early 1970s. This week, we'll see how their business partnership took off as they almost single-handedly built both the supply and demand for the U.S. cocaine market. When George Young met 25-year-old Carlos Later on their first day in the Federal Correctional Institute in Connecticut, neither man knew their fates would soon be inextricably linked. It was 1974. George had been caught after jumping bail on a federal marijuana charge. Undeterred, he planned to make as many contacts as possible while in prison. The way he saw it, 
a little jail time could actually help grow his cannabis smuggling business. Carlos, also doing time for marijuana possession and stealing cars, was equally opportunistic. He hoped to glean whatever information he could from his fellow inmates so he could use it later to break the Colombian cocaine market into the United States. As soon as the two started chatting, they realized how much they had in common. When he heard about Carlos's smuggling and trafficking experience, George felt smugly reassured. With contacts like Carlos, of course he could grow his business while locked up. It felt like a fortuitous start to an otherwise grim time. For Carlos, rubbing elbows with George was a dream come true, given his lofty goal of being a cocaine trafficking magnet. With George's years of experience and distribution contacts on both coasts, Carlos could have an incredible advantage. Such relationships could be hard for a Colombian to get otherwise. All Carlos had to do was sell George on the cocaine industry. George's knowledge of cocaine was pretty basic. He knew it was a popular celebrity party drug and that it came from Colombia. He'd never tried it himself. It wasn't in wide circulation in the US. Frankly, it had never even occurred to him to try to traffic it. Carlos started with the basics. Production costs were low in Colombia, so a kilo of pure cocaine sold for anywhere from four to six thousand US dollars. The same amount sold wholesale in the US for around $60,000, which would be more than $350,000 today. Already, the numbers sent George's mind racing. But Carlos wasn't done. Once you got into retail pricing, cutting the pure cocaine for street sale, one kilo could ultimately sell in the US for as much as $300,000. More than $1.5 million today. These staggering numbers made George's cannabis operation look like small potatoes. Yet he was perfectly poised to break into the new market. George knew how to keep his smuggling overhead costs low, and he was sure his contacts in Los Angeles would be interested in buying. If he played this right, all he had to do was get a few kilos out of Colombia into the U.S. market, and he'd be a millionaire. George only had one question for Carlos. Where could they get a reliable supply? Carlos smiled. He told George not to worry. He knew a guy. His cousin had a friend helping him get into cocaine production in Medellin. Pablo Escobar. Through these guys, Carlos was sure he could source as much cocaine as George could fly in on his planes. Then, George would introduce his distributors to the new product. He'd even let them sample it to show just how good the quality was. Once they did, he had no doubt they'd love to sell it. In fact, as he thought about it, George was pretty sure Carlos's numbers were an underestimate. If they truly had the best stuff on the market, they'd be able to jack up their prices. One handshake and a gentleman's agreement later, the two men were in business. They were going to be kings. It was only a matter of time. Of course, excited as they were, Carlos and George had to put these big dreams on hold. They still had a year or two ahead at Danbury, depending on how soon good behavior could get them early parole. Both men spent the rest of their incarceration being productive. 
George, as usual, built relationships. He got in with the Italian-American mobsters and befriended a fellow cannabis smuggler who ferried his product up from the Caribbean by boat. And Carlos set out doing reconnaissance. His accent and quirky, charming manner got him in with everyone he wanted to meet. By using flattery, he got even the most egotistical white-collar criminals to open up about their tricks of the trade. Carlos cherry-picked information from everyone. From a bank president convicted of embezzlement, he learned about offshore accounts and money laundering. From George's smuggler friend, he learned about sailing and navigating the Caribbean. From G. Gordon Liddy, mastermind of the Watergate break-in, he learned about the U.S. government and military. And from a doctor who defrauded the U.S. government, well, Carlos learned the secret of Belize. According to the doctor, the country's officials were corrupt and there was no extradition treaty with the U.S. A smart, wealthy man could do whatever he wanted there. Initially, Carlos believed that Belize could become the perfect base for their cocaine trafficking operations. But the more he thought about it, the more Carlos realized that if Belize was a country that could be bought, he could build more than just a base there. He could create his own empire. Sure, that might require taking over the government and running the country himself, but then he really could do whatever he wanted and charge other people to do whatever they wanted. Before long, Carlos shared his ideas for taking over Belize with George. All the talk about uprisings had him looking back to his role models, Adolf Hitler and Che Guevara. Carlos even toyed with the idea of taking over his own home country. Once they owned Belize, he told George, they would have the power to revolutionize Colombia. Their cocaine production would be part of the state, and Colombia would grow wealthy. Or at least, Carlos and his friends would be. Carlos was in for a letdown when George wasn't interested in his talk of revolutionary politics. The blonde cowboy smuggler was just an adrenaline junkie, looking to earn a bunch of money and have a good time. He tried to talk his new business partner out of the political talk, but Carlos wouldn't be deterred. Soon, George just tuned it out, telling himself that the cocaine trafficking would be temporary. He'd cash out as soon as he had all the money he'd ever need. After a year, George was released from Danbury on parole in spring of 1975, nearly 12 months before Carlos was due to get out. As a condition of his parole, George had sworn to clean up his act. This meant getting into fishing with his smuggler friend from prison. He even bought a boat and hired a crew. He planned to stick to that story for just long enough to convince his parole officer that he was on the straight and narrow. In reality, George had plenty to do to prepare for Carlos's release. He reconnected with his pilots and drug distributors in the Northeast and reached out to Manuel, his former partner in marijuana smuggling in Mazatlan. But instead of wanting in, Manuel warned George of the dangerous and cutthroat cocaine industry. George rolled his eyes as he hung up. His loss. Finally, early in 1976, 26-year-old Carlos got out of Danbury prison and was deported back to Colombia as expected. No matter, 
Carlos actually needed to be in South America to start reviving his connections with the cocaine mafiosos and selling them on the grand plan he had. Since he wasn't allowed back in the United States, he sent George a telegram inviting his new business partner to come visit him in Medellin, as if to say, let the schmoozing begin. George was ready, but he wasn't unnecessarily risky. So rather than get caught skipping parole, he sent a childhood friend who'd done some cross-country flights for his marijuana business. As a pilot, he'd be able to scope out the airfield situation, as well as make connections with the Colombians Carlos knew. Carlos understood why George couldn't calm himself, but that didn't mean he wasn't disappointed. He'd put himself on the line trying to sell these Colombian cocaine mafiosos on his new American partner. It would have gone a long way to easing their minds if they could have met George themselves. These were cautious men who'd spent years building their networks. They all knew Carlos was smart and dedicated, but they also weren't ignorant of the fact that he'd gotten himself caught dealing cannabis, the easiest of drugs. Sure, he had hustle, but he'd have to prove himself and his vision to them. Which meant that without George in town, their business wouldn't get the green light just yet. Carlos's contacts then posed a test. If the two could successfully smuggle several kilos of cocaine into the U.S. and sell it for at least 50 grand a kilo, then maybe they could be trusted. Coming up, George and Carlos concoct a plan to impress the Colombians and nearly fly too close to the sun. Now back to the story. In March of 1976, up-and-coming smugglers George Young and Carlos Leda faced the heady task of pulling off a cocaine smuggling sting to get the green light to expand their business into Colombia. Never ones to decline a challenge, the two men created a plan. George would send two attractive young women, his new girlfriend and a friend of hers, on an all-expenses-paid vacation to the Caribbean island of Antigua. With them, they'd carry 15 small hardshell suitcases. Once they were in Antigua, Carlos and some of his guys would swap the suitcases for identical ones that each had a kilo of cocaine carefully packed into the plastic liner. To sell their cover, the women would vacation on the beach for a week before returning to Boston with half of the loaded bags in tow. They'd go back to Antigua the next day to get the other seven. Inexplicably, the men didn't think that second trip would cause suspicion. George would then hand off 10 of the kilos to a Colombian contact of Carlos's before distributing the remaining five himself. If he was successful, the Colombians would have all the proof they needed. The trip started smoothly, even if George was on edge. When his girlfriend called him from Antigua to say that they'd met Carlos and all was well, he tried to relax. As much as he liked to be in control, George reminded himself that he was going to have to learn to trust other people, especially now that he had a business partner. It was a great relief when at the end of the week, his girlfriend and her friend returned to meet George in Massachusetts until he realized they didn't have the suitcases. The eight kilos of cocaine he'd entrusted the women to bring back weren't there. George 
panicked, demanding to know how they could be so relaxed when they didn't have the bags. George's girlfriend was confused. They hadn't wanted to lug the suitcases on the bus from the airport, so they'd left them in lockers at a bus station in Boston. Rule number one of drug smuggling? Never let the product out of your sight until you made the sale. George was beside himself, knowing all it would take was one clever thief and the suitcases would be gone. Then, some of the most dangerous men in Colombia would be putting targets on their back. George and the women jumped in the car and floored it back to Boston. There, they found the suitcases safely in the lockers just as they'd been left. George almost cried with relief. The job wasn't totally botched. The plan could still get back on track. The next day, George had no choice but to send the women back to Antigua to get the other half of the suitcases. He couldn't very well find new couriers at this point. Fortunately, the rest of the plan went smoothly. In fact, it ended up even better than George could have hoped. He hadn't been sure how much demand there'd be in Massachusetts for premium cocaine, but once his contacts discovered how high quality his product was, they promised him they could sell it. Within a week, George had sold his first five kilos for $47,000 apiece, and he hadn't even tapped into his Los Angeles network yet. Shortly thereafter, he dropped off the remaining 10 kilos with Carlos's Colombian friend, reporting back to Carlos that things had gone well. It's a good bet that he didn't relay the Boston locker fiasco, though. As soon as Carlos checked in with the Colombian suppliers, they'd be doing good business. And soon, the thumbs up came, albeit for a bit smaller amounts than they'd hoped. Though Carlos understood it would take time to get the Colombians to trust them with bigger amounts, he was still chomping at the bit after their successful operation. With his persuasion, Carlos soon got them to commit to a more steady supply. Grateful, he assured the Colombians that demand was growing. He and George would prove it. Let's not forget, Carlos was also looking out for his bottom dollar. More buyers meant he and George would solidify themselves as reliable traffickers and be able to negotiate a higher commission. With the details hammered out, they set their new route. Carlos's girlfriend, a Cuban-American New Yorker, would act as their regular smuggler, bringing suitcases into the U.S. at least once a month. George would then drive down to New York to pick up the kilos of cocaine and distribute them to his contacts. The trio did this steadily for a few months, building startup capital. By the fall of 1976, George had found them a pilot with a plane who knew the routes. Carlos wanted to meet him, so the three had to figure out a meeting place to discuss logistics. This proved tricky when Carlos wasn't allowed in the US and George wasn't allowed to leave the country. As they threw around ideas, Carlos suggested Toronto. Not only did he like the idea of all of them flying into a foreign locale, it felt very secret agent to him, but it eliminated the risk that anyone would see them together and start making any assumptions. As veterans of the drug trade with criminal records, they knew they had to be careful. Laid-back George didn't care about the romantic espionage aspect, but agreed that Canada was a less risky meeting place. All he had to do was get a passport in a fake name, which, with his connections, was easy enough. 
In October 1976, professed brothers Carlos and George, now 27 and 34 respectively, were finally back together in Toronto. All of their planning was starting to pay off. They spent the day sorting out all the details the pilot would need. Carlos handled most of the logistics, everything from what kind of engine would be best to how to pack the plane most effectively, to which island in the Bahamas was best to use as a fuel stopover. Carlos was always the details guy. George, on the other hand, only cared about where the planes were stopping, who was getting paid, and how much they were taking home. The three of them agreed that the pilot would get the largest share of money from a run, since the person actually smuggling the cocaine into the country had the highest risk of getting in trouble. George and Carlos would split the rest evenly. By the time the meeting finished, they'd agreed that the pilot would take the next few months to make the necessary modifications to his plane. In the meantime, George and Carlos would keep building their credibility with the Colombian suppliers. That winter, though, things started to unravel. First, Carlos's $50,000 check to the pilot, meant to pay for the plane's modifications, unexpectedly bounced. Livid at Carlos's screw-up, an apologetic George had to give the pilot $25,000 in cash in order to keep him from walking. Shortly thereafter, in early 1977, one of their smuggling trips, moving nearly 10 kilos of cocaine, had to be cancelled when Carlos got arrested in Colombia. While they were building their business, he decided to get back into trafficking stolen cars in order to hustle some cash, and because he could never turn down a chance to drive nice cars. Unfortunately, he got caught right when he was expected to be managing a suitcase handover. He finagled his way out of jail within a few months, but the timing only made George even angrier. He didn't like covering for Carlos. Hoping to smooth things over after that, Carlos asked George to meet him in Toronto, their safe spot. As paranoid ex-cons building a cocaine empire, Carlos didn't feel they should talk specifics over the phone. Once they were safely in a Toronto hotel, Carlos told George about their biggest deal yet. He had 50 kilos of cocaine waiting for them in Miami. If George could go down to Florida to get it, Carlos would meet him back in Boston. George was on board. Even with this huge rendezvous approaching, Carlos, in his typical style, preferred to do what he wanted, when he wanted. And suddenly, that meant marrying his girlfriend. He flew her up from New York the very next day, and they were wed in a makeshift chapel in a basement a few hours outside Toronto. George stood by as their witness. Always one to optimize a situation, Carlos decided to tack on a honeymoon, this time to picturesque Montreal. He felt confident that George could handle picking up the cocaine in Miami and sitting on the delivery for a few extra days. Then, after his honeymoon, Carlos would sneak across the border into Vermont or New York, zoom down to Boston by car, and they'd be printing money before long. In the meantime, George headed to Florida, taking his girlfriend and her daughter with him. Though it seemed odd to have an entourage for a drug run, having them with him helped bolster his cover story. 
a seashell collector from Cape Cod with a family no less. He settled them into the fanciest hotel in Miami Beach and grabbed a cab to the address Carlos had given him. He knew Carlos probably wouldn't have approved of the taxi, deeming it too mundane and not exciting enough. But Carlos wasn't there, and George always believed in doing his business in broad daylight. If he acted like everything he was doing was on the up and up, why would anyone suspect otherwise? When he got to the address, the man waiting for George was irate. He said he'd been waiting for Carlos for three weeks, which shocked George. He was unsettled that Carlos hadn't mentioned that the contact was waiting for him while they were hanging out in Toronto. It seemed like someone waiting to unload 50 kilos, their biggest operation yet, would have taken priority. George didn't hear anything from Carlos until he'd been home from Miami for nearly four days. And when he did finally call, Carlos said he'd changed his mind about getting back to Boston. Now, he wanted someone to come get him in Montreal and drive him back down. George didn't want to risk going himself, so he sent his friend Courtney, along with Courtney's teenage daughter, thinking that would look less suspicious. The next day, Courtney and his daughter picked up Carlos without incident. Together, they headed back toward the border, driving along snowy country roads toward Vermont. But as they approached the border, Carlos started having second thoughts. Sure, he'd been waved through without being checked dozens of times. New England checkpoints were famously relaxed. That's why he'd opted for the route in the first place. But as the checkpoint grew closer by the second, Carlos kept considering what would happen if they weren't waved through. He didn't have a fake passport, having not needed one to go to Canada. If the guards wanted to run his passport, he'd have no choice but to give them his real one. They'd immediately see he'd been deported a year earlier. Not only would he not be allowed back in the U.S., they might even arrest him on the spot. All his and George's grand plans would evaporate. Clearly, he had reason to sweat. With urgency, Carlos ordered Courtney to stop the car. He changed his mind. He was going to cut through the snowy woods and cross the border on foot, out of sight of the border officials. He'd meet up with them on the highway about a mile after the checkpoint. Courtney argued that it was ridiculous to change the plan at this point. Carlos wasn't dressed for the snowy weather. It was getting dark, and he didn't know his way. He could easily get lost and die out there. Carlos waved off his concern. He was a Colombian cocaine trafficker. He was smarter than everyone else, and he'd survive this long. A couple miles walking through the woods wasn't going to hurt him. And off Carlos ran into the snowy dusk. Coming up, with Carlos on the run, George is faced with a make-or-break-it decision for their business. Now back to the story. In March 1977, 34-year-old Carl Young and 27-year-old Carlos Leda were supposed to be doing their first large-scale cocaine deal, moving 50 kilos for one of Carlos's Colombian contacts. However, Carlos got spooked about crossing the U.S.-Canadian border and instead ran off into the snowy woods on foot. As Carlos trudged along, he kept the road and the border checkpoint just in sight through the trees so he wouldn't get lost. It wasn't easy going, 
but he felt a lot better being in control of his fate. He could never fully trust anyone else to look out for his own best interests. Finally, when he was sure he was over the border and well beyond the patrols, Carlos headed back to the side of the highway to wait for a friend's car to make it through and come pick him up. But the minutes started to stretch out and still, George's friend Courtney didn't show. Carlos figured maybe there'd be a long line at the border or that the snow was slowing traffic down. Then, in the distance, he heard dogs barking. Within seconds, Carlos realized that his ride's absence and those dogs might just be related. The dogs were searching for him. Carlos took off back into the woods, heading south. As it started to snow more heavily and the night got colder, he was acutely aware of his terrible planning. He was lost, soaked and freezing, all while being chased by police dogs. Ironically, Carlos was most distraught by the fact that he might never get the chance to move those 50 kilos of cocaine. He'd freeze to death in the Vermont wilderness without ever showing the world just how much Carlos Leda could do. Meanwhile, back at the border, Courtney had been ordered out of his car by the border officers. They could tell he was nervous and wanted to search his car. Inside, they found Carlos's Colombian passport, nearly $20,000 worth of Colombian cash, and an extra suitcase. Thinking on his feet, Courtney explained he and his daughter had picked up a hitchhiker along the way. A few miles back, the hitchhiker had demanded they let him out and had disappeared into the forest. He told the officials he didn't know any more than that. While they let Courtney go, the officials were suspicious of this supposed hitchhiker. They ran Carlos's passport and immediately discovered his criminal record. Clearly, this felon was trying to cross the U.S. border on foot. Following protocol, they called up the search dogs and began sweeping the woods. Meanwhile, Courtney was speeding away from the checkpoint, heading home. Even though Carlos was still out there on his own, he was cutting his losses. In his mind, it was the Colombian's own fault for panicking and taking off. When he got back to Massachusetts, Courtney at least stopped by to tell George what had happened. Unsurprisingly, George freaked out. He was sure the feds would catch Carlos and find out they were connected. He couldn't be sitting around with 50 kilos of cocaine waiting for them to come knocking on his door. George also knew that there were likely a lot of powerful and dangerous Colombians who were expecting Carlos to have already delivered their cocaine. And George had no interest in pissing them off either. Though George held out for several days, when no word from Carlos came, he decided he couldn't wait any longer. For all he knew, his business partner was dead somewhere in the Vermont backwards. George wasn't one to just let things happen to him. He was the kind of guy who made things happen, even if he wasn't always sure how they turn out. So, George got to work. Without Carlos, he had no way of getting the cocaine to its planned destination, but he could sell it and funnel the money back to their contacts. He called up an old contact in Southern California, a Manhattan Beach guy he used to sell marijuana to. Not only did Richard Barile manage most of the drug sales in Los Angeles, he also knew everyone. 
If anyone could move 50 kilos quickly, it would be Richard. George got on the next flight to LA. Upon his arrival, Richard took one look at the pure cocaine and nearly fainted. He'd been selling mediocre product compared to George's stuff, and he was sure he could charge a premium for this. Within five days, Richard had sold the whole lot for $2.35 million, which would be more than $10 million today. The two men were giddy with excitement. Richard knew he'd just become the premier cocaine source in Los Angeles, where the market was just starting to boom. He wanted to know how quickly George could get more. But that would have to wait. Now that he'd made the money, George knew he had to track down the Colombians on the East Coast who'd hired him and Carlos to move those kilos and pay them back immediately. Once he gave the Colombians their share of the profits and they counted the money, they'd realize not only that he was reliable, but that he'd just made them more money than they'd asked for. If he was careful, George might just be able to make Carlos's massive slip-up their eternal payday. So he and Richard packed up all the cash in a few camera cases and flew it back from LA to Massachusetts. They might be seasoned smugglers, but they were still convinced that every moment the police might catch them. Somehow, George made it all the way back to a friend's house without incident. He didn't dare stay at his parents in case the police were on to him. And just as he was starting to strategize about how to track down the Colombians, he finally heard from Carlos. Apparently, while stumbling through the woods in Vermont, Carlos had miraculously come upon a house. He'd asked the older woman who lived there if he could use her phone to call a taxi, as his car had broken down a few miles back. She was more than happy to let him, but said it was unlikely that he'd get a cab. But Carlos charmed her as he charmed everyone, and she invited him to stay over. It'd be easier for him to get a taxi in the morning. It had taken him a couple days to get down to New York, where his new wife lived. From there, he tried to call George, but by that point, George was already in Los Angeles. When Carlos couldn't reach him for a few days, he decided to drive up to Boston to try to find him. The two men had just kept missing each other. By the time the men finally tracked each other down, Carlos was panicked. But George delivered the most calming news of his life he'd already sold the whole delivery for $2.35 million. Sure, selling it wasn't what the Colombians had hired Carlos to do, but it was far more money than they'd anticipated making on that amount of product. And he'd moved it all in a far shorter amount of time than either Carlos or their suppliers could have dreamed of. By the time George handed over the cash, keeping $500,000 for himself as a fee, Carlos's mood had pulled a 180. He was back on top of the world. The thrill of money and adrenaline had a way of pushing the fears of disaster behind him. When he delivered the money to the Colombian suppliers, Carlos boasted about how his business partner had just single-handedly opened up the cocaine market, as if that had been the plan all along. And as soon as the Colombians saw the cash and heard Carlos's story, they knew they'd just stumbled onto the biggest break their business had ever seen. 
George's gamble had paid off. Everyone in Medellin wanted to get in on George and Carlos's operation. They wanted these two guys moving their cocaine into the US and getting it out to their distributors as quickly as possible. Suddenly, all the technicalities that were holding them back before didn't matter anymore. So what if their pilot's plane wasn't ready? The Colombians boasted they had their own ways of smuggling their product into Miami. If George and Carlos could pick it up in Florida and sell it around the country, the suppliers were ready to pay. Overnight, and by sheer dumb luck, George and Carlos had become the premier cocaine traffickers in the Americas. If they could move 50 kilos every week as their suppliers hoped, they'd be bringing in more than $9 million a month. Even if they each only kept $2 million of that, they were about to have more money than they knew what to do with. George and Carlos were about to make their wildest dreams come true. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how Carlos and George began to discover just how different their dreams really were, even as the stakes continued to get higher. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Nick Johnson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. 